You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, and I'm talking today to UNE Emeritus Professor Gisela Kaplan, who was recently named an honorary member of the Order of Australia for her extensive work with native birds and their behaviour. So first of all, congratulations on this incredible achievement. How does it feel to have been named an honorary member of the Order of Australia? Well, on behalf of uh, native Australian birds, I am very pleased because if, if something becomes of national interest enough to give awards for having written and uh, talked about them, wherever I go, whenever I'm not asleep, <laughs> then uh, that shows a change of attitude, doesn't it? Uh, that, uh, in fact, our wildlife is important and that helps and encourages everybody who has uh, such views to take note and to continue with whatever they are doing to help uh, our native birds and uh, native wildlife and native plants to survive into the future. So from that point of view, already it's a, a wonderful and I've gratefully accept that uh, um, nomination, not that I had any word in it, but (laughs) that's wonderful, yes. You know, it's an amazing achievement, and you've been studying animal behaviour for quite a long time. What drew you to studying that? Well, you see, uh, you probably know I had a different career beforehand, and uh, uh, then we started going uh, to Borneo, but I had studied uh, psychology and uh, to the degree that I was ready to become registered as a clinical psychologist and then for a variety of reasons didn't take that up. But uh, psychology is a very good preparation actually for uh, studying great apes. And uh, we went to Borneo into the field. I do all my work in the field and uh, studied orangutans. And then one day, the uh, you know, was our, uh, our former prime minister, that was uh, Howard at the time, and uh, uh, Mahatia, they didn't really like each other very much, I don't think, because they had many open spats. And uh, as a reprise, all the uh, the, the Malaysian counterpart decided to uh, block all research permits for a study of, of primates in, in Malaysian country, and that ended our orangutan research rather promptly. And uh, very regrettably, but we had a lot of data and we published uh, several books on orangutans. And then uh, the question arose, you know, if I do so much for orangutans somewhere in Malaysia, and I'm not allowed to do that anymore, what can I do for wildlife in Australia? And that's when I joined a wildlife organization, still not uh, thinking of studying it because uh, studying that means Really, psychology is not enough. You really need a special uh, degree where you have dealt with uh, birds and with all the aspects of uh, research on birds. So I did a second PhD, and uh, that was done at the University of uh, Queensland in the School of Veterinary Science. But the interest, the research interest in birds really started with the most extraordinary little event. I had uh, hand-raised a magpie, and it was by now juvenile, grown up enough to run around in the garden, which it did. But the moment I showed my face, or rather my shoes, it was there uh, trying to undo shoelaces and uh, play with me. So, And one day, 
I heard something that sounded like a human voice. I thought, what, what on earth was that? So I went out and looked. There was nobody there, but then the little magpie came, looked up at me and said, I've got dinner for you. Literally as clearly as that, I've got dinner for you. I looked at the bird and was absolutely astounded. Nobody had told me before that they can mimic. Well, many people probably did know that, but I didn't. And uh, why it would have picked up an entire sentence wasn't clear to me either. So I just couldn't resist that I had to record all of that. And from this recording, it turned into an endless uh, set of recordings and studies. And then uh, I did my PhD on vocal communications in uh, in magpies and got totally taken in by this. And of course, the bird was extremely charming as well. And I'd formed this personal relationship with it, uh, which something I know many people have. In fact, they have uh, turned their magpies in their garden into firm friends. And their ability to do that is... Uh, very close to uh, the communication abilities of dogs, I would say, at least from my point of view. And it made me realize that uh, there were so many aspects of uh, birds or native birds we didn't know that this magpie was extraordinary. I wanted to know whether it was extraordinary or was standard uh, fare. And um, even in the play behavior, it showed unusual aspects. But there was another little juvenile, for instance, they played hide-and-seek. Now, from psychology, I knew that hide-and-seek playing in children doesn't fully develop until the age of five. They they start playing it a little beforehand, and but uh, to master, it takes up to five years of age in a human child. So for magpies to do this as their standard repertoire, I thought was uh, absolutely amazing and surprising, I shouldn't really say surprising, but at that time it was surprising because somehow, like many other people, I didn't think much about birds and what they could think or how and whether they could think, whether they felt emotions. Now to find this play behavior at a sophisticated level, which demanded quite a number of cognitive abilities, well beyond many other species, and even young children, you know, so because you need to imagine that something that had gone out of sight was still there and just hiding, and somehow conceptually that's difficult to grasp. Once it's gone, it's gone, and uh, to learn that it hasn't gone but it's hiding is is a skill that uh, demands some specific cognitive ability. But anyway. And that's where the research started. And uh, I not only became passionate about it, I was shocked every single day of the week how ignorant I had been. And uh, worse, what kind of assumptions that uh, included, you know, that birds couldn't think, that birds couldn't feel. I didn't think that consciously, but uh, I didn't think there was anything much to be learned. And that changed very, very quickly. And still after 20 years now of doing that research and research with magpies, I know uh, there is a lot more that we can learn. And now also about their emotions, which are quite sophisticated. And recent studies have actually shown that uh, the hormones they have and the neurotransmitters they have 
have exactly the same range as in humans. So the studies have now started for the last decade at the most to compare human and uh, bird brains because if you have your oxytocin and your serotonin and your dopamine and all of those elements, and you obviously they're of some use. So there you are. That's how I got into it. And uh, it, it became an obsession and a joy and a total, well, should I say, a, a journey of discovery. I wanted to avoid the word journey, but yeah. <laughs> it is a journey of discovery. And the discovery is that Australian birds, by the way, the songbirds first arose in Australia and then uh, migrated out to Southeast Asia and eventually to Europe and very, very late in the piece got as far as uh, North America. But uh, the knowledge that we have birds here that arose in Australia that have such a rich palette of cognitive abilities, of emotions, is that they form family groups and strong attachments and that they grieve over a lost partner and that they look after their offspring so very well and for such a long period of time. Everywhere else in the world, it's much shorter. You know, if you, let's say if a, a little bird in Europe or in England, let's say they uh, are migratory, they get there, have to find a partner quickly then they have to raise their young and all of that in three to four weeks. And then they have to migrate. So there isn't much that's developed and quite often uh, they don't get the time after fledging. The young ones don't get time after fledging to uh, learn extra skills or extra communication. They just have to be ready to go. But uh, in Australia, it, when you look at, uh, let's say, magpies, they can keep their offspring at least until the next breeding season. So that's six, seven months. And the parents supervise them, they communicate with them, they tell them where the danger is. The youngsters accompany the parents when they search and find food. And uh, all, all of these elements are missing in many northern hemisphere birds. And uh, they make them very unusual and very well prepared with a higher chance of survival, of course. And, you know, you can just see your passion just hearing you talk about it, how clear your passion and love for this is. So you touched on it a little bit earlier, but how does urbanisation and human activity affect the behaviours of native birds? Well, there have been some studies, and, of course, uh, urbanisation in itself does not need to affect uh, bird behaviour all that much. But we do have studies that show that in general, in dense cities, populations of birds um, haven't only gone down, but the number of species that can live with us or in, in human company or in populated areas is just um, up sub between 10 and 20 percent mm. of the species that are in that same region. So there are only the hardy ones. And then, of course, um, as we have another problem because of housing shortage and uh, real estate development and uh, all sorts of other social considerations and mismanagements as well, we have now suburbs that are totally heat sinks. And those heat sinks mean that the houses are so close together you can shake hands through the kitchen window, number one. 
uh, the uh, house fills almost the entire backyard, so there isn't much of a backyard. And the little bit of area that's green is even on the footpath is filled with artificial grass. So we've done also for humans a very great disservice in that we've uh, built, and that can be seen in in uh, Sydney now. It, it's criminal, I think, because they all become heat sinks, and the temperatures could rise to as much as sixty degrees. And of course, it, there's no room for shrubs or trees. So if you want to urbanise, I think that's what has happened in Europe now. They call that rewilding, but not rewilding just the national parks, but actually rewilding the cities so that there's more parkland, more open spaces. That means wherever they want to do um, dense living, they may have one high-rise thing and then a few others that are lower and make sh- to make sure that there is enough of a parkland surrounding it in which native trees and shrubs are planted. That's another thing we do. We, we still do the old English thing. We behave like a colony when we then plant, uh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> a, whatever, roses and other species that uh, are of absolutely no benefit to uh, native birds. But if we do this cleverly, we could, in fact, see in urbanization quite a number of birds. Uh, they need roosting space, and so do we. We we don't want to roost on trees, but we want the shade of trees. They don't need to be very tall so that they're not dangerous to roofs, but uh, they improve the oxygen level, they lower the temperature, um, they're far more pleasant living, and that has to be done at the planning stage. So unless we can turn a corner there and uh, re-green our cities much more extensively and do so at also at the design stage, then we can create also living spaces for um, for birds again. And that benefits us greatly because they eat all the things we don't want, like cockroaches and mosquitoes and you know, other creepy crawlies. And uh, we can re-establish an urban, healthy eco-friendly environment. It's very so, much a balancing act, yeah. Yeah, it is a balancing act, but there is a lot that can be done and can be done far more cleverly to uh, uh, suit uh, humans and, uh, you know, there should be a maximum size of a house on a very small block, obviously, and if they want more, that should be built up so that there is some backyard and uh, there is something in that backyard and can make habitat for frogs quite easily. You can make habitat for lizards quite easily and for birds very easily. You just have a little uh, a drinking area and a bit of shade somewhere. That's already a, a very good start and some native shrubs and uh, uh, that uh, lily pillies, for instance, you know, are fantastic food, they, the berries they produce. And um, it, the, that hasn't really happened so much in um, New South Wales or rather in Sydney and it's got to restart or we are losing it all. So in other words what I'm saying is unless we do a clever urban development now that takes all these factors into consideration, the number of birds that will visit us will, uh, uh, will decline even further and I have been to talks where I've been asked to speak to children and I played back um, bird sounds, and as 
what I thought was well known enough as a kookaburra, the kids did not know or recognize. And that really shocked me to the core. 60 children, there was not one that recognized the kookaburra call. And uh, I don't blame the children, of course, but this is a worrying development because it means they've never heard it. Or if they've heard it, nobody has bothered to tell them that that's actually a very distinct and well-known call that's um, uh, well-known throughout the world, actually. And the kids growing up in a city in Australia don't know. The only one they recognized was a carol, mm. literally. I played back about uh, 30 bird sounds from uh, very well-known and very frequent ones to very inf uh, to a f more infrequent ones. And I would have expected at least a third of the kids to show some knowledge or, or recognize them spontaneously. You know, it's not knowledge. Just be part of the soundscape of their lives or their consciousness, and they didn't. So yeah, that that shows you how far removed we are in some parts of the urban environment from any uh, life around nature. And the problem is that uh, urban environments are not uh, independent of the surrounding natural environment. On the contrary, you know, they feed on it. And unless they keep all of that alive, that will uh, eventually affect uh, the urban environment as well. Mm. But the ones that have survived, they are funny. Um, incidents where urbanization has benefited birds. And, uh, but, you know, I mentioned the caravan before, but for all the wrong reasons, because people plant privets in their gardens and do all this uh, exotic planting. And uh, caravans are, in fact, a hugely important bird, like bats, for uh, Australian native plants because they disperse the uh, seeds of native uh, uh, plants and they take them anywhere because they bring up pellets that have already a, like a nice little uh, uh, planting bed, the seed in them. So there's a chance for the seeds to develop outside and take root. And uh, But they are nomadic and they have to be nomadic in order to uh, get to all the uh, very fickle ripening stages of native fruit. You know, one year they, this area may get a lot of fruit, another it doesn't. So they have to be mobile, so they're nomadic, and they stay where they find fruit. Now, privet produce lots of fruit, and they stay. So if you have a lot of caramels in, in your city, for instance, you know that you've got the wrong plants, in, very often planted by council, of introduced species, and they, uh, the shame is that they then eat those, and if there's plentiful supply, they will stay, and they shouldn't stay because they shouldn't. They should be mobile to do their job properly, and the, they disperse all the uh, seeds of introduced exotic plants, which eventually harm and kill local plants. You mentioned earlier um, about this juvenile magpie that you had that mimicked human speech. Are there other instances of magpies and other birds learning behaviours from humans? Yes. Well, actually, uh, no, Australian birds are very good in mimicry. And uh, the first one that comes to mind is, of course, the, the unparalleled uh, uh, 
abilities of the lyrebird, and the lyrebird can even mimic um, non-animate uh, sounds, anything from a from a car horn to a uh, the alarm of uh, an ambulance or what what have you. So they're very good, and they use it for a particular purpose, namely to in, to influence and impress a female and to mate with her. So that bravado that uh, the lyrebird displays is uh, is exceptional because he also dances. But there are many other species. Uh, even the satin bowerbird can um, mimic human speech. And uh, there was a very old publication by last century by Chisholm, and he thought that at least 48 Australian songbirds could mimic and could mimic a human speech. But the human speech part is particularly good, uh, and I'm not including parrots here because you can just about teach any parrot to speak uh, in human speech, and in some of the highly intelligent ones like uh, uh, the uh, cockatoos, and uh, they they can even reply to you in a meaningful way. Uh, so let's say. Um, one bird has just pinched a uh, uh, some item like your keys, and you can say, "I want this back." And uh, the bird, if the bird has had enough verbal training, uh, will say no. <laughs> I will simply say no. And uh, magpies have reached that stage of understanding of human speech and communication and what the semantic signals mean that they can employ them almost very much like a child. So I'll give you an example of a magpie that um, uh, lived on a farm and there was a cat and the cat wanted that uh, magpie gone, but there was also a dog on the property and the cat approached the magpie that was sitting on the log and the magpie called the dog the dog came running and chased the, uh, the cat away. So that's a meaningful interaction, isn't it? It really is. And it's surprising how quickly they learn as well. You know, even here on campus, they've found uh, the people who they know will give them food and they'll congregate to them. And it's either because they want to be friends with the magpies or, you know, these people, they know which ones are scared of them and will throw food to get the birds away from them. <laughs> Yes, uh, that's definitely true. They they learn very quickly, and they also have the ability, and that's what always this uh, question about mobbing is about. You know, the ability to assess whether people are friendly or potentially dangerous, and uh, when it comes time to uh, breed, the males keep a watchful eye on the females while she's brooding to make sure that nobody uh, will do any harm to the nest. And uh, there was a very funny incident at the um, at the university. Uh, years ago, the, um, uh, the uh, I can speak about that person because she's no longer there, but uh, said, you and your bloody magpies, they're, they're swooping us here. And uh, you better come over and you stand there. And I said, okay, I'll take up the challenge. But I sent one of my PhD students over and said, can you do me a favor and watch the people going in and out of this building and what they actually do and how the magpie interaction happens? Well, there it is. The, uh, uh, the chair of peace studies put 
umbrellas out. You know these long umbrellas? Mm. Uh, out at the entrance. So when anybody, staff member came out, they took an umbrella and literally tried to fence with the magpies. The magpie male, you said there was a magpie male. And that is about the worst. It's a, it's an open declaration of war because you're saying you're going to, uh, you're willing to do harm to that magpie. And, uh, so everybody who came out of that building was being mobbed and, uh, people had to use back roads and all that sort of thing because of those umbrellas. The magpie male judged that these were dangerous people and they were warlike and they had to be stopped. So then they asked me to come over and said I should take some of the beating that the poor staff had taken. And I stood there, even the local media were invited. We stood there for 45 minutes. The bird did not attack me at all because I looked up at the bird. I spoke to the bird, was sitting right opposite in a tree. I didn't have an umbrella. I didn't show any signs of aggression. So the magpie decided, and that ability of risk assessment demands very high uh, cognitive abilities, but uh, the magpie decided I was no danger, I was harmless. So uh, it, the uh, joy that uh, the others felt they would have when they see me attack didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> so And from then on came the study of uh, the ability of magpies to recognize human faces and remember them. Mm. They will remember them for years, and so will caravans. I'd hand-raised a caravan when five years later that caravan came back. I always thought it was a male, turned out to be a female, and I recognized her because one of the uh, wings was drooping a bit, but um, she could fly. And she landed on, on the bench, and when I approached slowly, she didn't fly away. And I thought, well, that still doesn't mean it. You know, caravans look so similar. I, I can't tell the difference unless you banned them. But uh, at any rate, we had a little ritual when uh, I raised her and she was already free in the garden to put some grapes in a little dish halfway under her aviary where nobody else could see it. So I went inside, uh, tiptoed out, put the dish there and then closed the sliding door as I always used to do five years earlier. The bird looked at the sliding door closing and within a second was at that dish and ate the grapes. So it had the memory of five years ago. It recognized me and uh, it decided then this was a good place to uh, nest and raise its offspring. So then came back every year. But the bird nev the birds never stayed, as indeed they shouldn't, because I didn't have anything uh, fruiting there and certainly none of the exotics so it had to move on and find food and sometimes they move hundreds of kilometers but that's the way it's meant to be. So Gisela one of your areas of research that you've mentioned is in vocal learning in addition to this complex cognition that we're now learning that birds have. Do birds from different areas have different accent accents or dialects in their song? Uh, yes, that's definitely true. Uh, I've uh, looked at it, and we know that of uh, definitely know that of parrots that they have dialects and they're quite easy to detect. And, and some of their uh, vocalizations, as somebody can immediately tell, oh, these are intruders into our area. And uh, but 
there are also songbirds and other birds that seem to have dialects. The Chowchilla was studied extensively. It's restricted to a rainforest environment, and uh, they found even in small area differences, by only be 20 kilometers on, that they actually have slightly different vocal behavior. And uh, that's how they can keep each other apart and may, uh, that's a way they can protect their territories. He said, uh-oh, the Joe Blow shouldn't be here, should go back to where he or she belongs. And um, so we do know, and uh, dialects have been studied extensively in the United States and in England, and uh, most songbirds have some form of dialect. So. That is definitely still an area of study where we need far more research done and to see what it means. Magpies are lifelong learners, and so are many other Australian birds. That means when they move from territory, they often share 25% of their song with their neighbours, which is another way of saying, okay, this is our neighbourhood and this is how much we have in common. And um, that can be read also by newcomers very easily that uh, these are bound to be neighbors. But uh, that 25%, if if you move around and you learn song of the neighbor to overlap with your own, you must be able to continue learning. And that's one of the great gifts that many Australian birds have. And very often... In other species, you find that uh, humans are, uh, and uh, dolphins and birds are the only ones that have the capacity for lifelong learning, particularly of vocal behavior. So that's another exciting uh, discovery that uh, they can learn until their 70s or in their 80s. So what do you find most fascinating about birds and their behaviors? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> yep. Yes. Because because every behavior, particularly, you see, when you do field work, the hardship of field work is that you spend hours and hours and hours. And very often, when I did all my research in Armadale, you know how cold the winters are. Mm-hmm. And when you are up at five o'clock in the morning on the, in, the, in winter, it is bitterly cold. And yet you are out there with uh, your recording equipment uh, trying to get the first sounds of the day in. And you discover things when you are out there with them and they have accepted you, which they did very graciously, said, oh, she's no problem, she can stay. You can actually record their daily activities and um, then you find out a number of things that you didn't expect. That kind of direct observation always means you find more than you were looking for. For instance, I found how a magpie, a young adults or sub-adult magpies cheated, that they uh, sneaked out of uh, their own territory and they looked over their shoulders literally all the time to make sure that nobody had detected them. And when you thought he saw somebody, he was trying to look on the ground and pretend he was feeding or picking on some food. And uh, then went to the neighboring territory and uh, had his female over there and then tiptoed back. So you discover things like that as well. But these are sort of the additional discoveries you make, and they lead to new questions, and they need uh, then need to be investigated in some way because these things hang together. 
and I've just written a play on play behavior in birds, which will be published in uh, in neuroscience and in the biobehavioral review shortly, I think. And uh, that shows that play behavior in uh, birds is highly related to complex cognition or, or high intelligence. And uh, these complexities, particularly in social uh, play with others, seems to be the highest stage. And when you look at it in comparison to other mammals, there is about the same gradation of intelligence and play. You know, it's, it's just so wonderful to hear your passion. I just have one final question, and I think I might have a good guess as to what your answer is. But uh, what is your favorite bird? Uh, I feel a little bit like a parent with four children. <laughs> uh, secretly, you might have a favorite bird. Officially, you won't. Yeah. Because it would make you feel immediately very guilty. Because you see, there is an, some argument you don't necessarily need to make <clears throat> with children, but uh, but for birds, it can be said that every bird has an important function in this environment. And even a bird I don't like, I don't like one bird eating another, for instance. Mm. And I could get quite angry about it, and I've even been I had to hold myself back not to intervene to save one bird in order for another bird to eat it. But anyway, they all have their function. And if one is missing, then that is a hole in that kind of web of life balance. And that's a disaster. But uh, the birds I have worked with, I all love specifically, dearly, of course. And these are some of the parrots and my cockatoos and uh, the the magpies. I mean, they are the most popular bird in Australia, and rightly so, and a bit of an iconic thing because they've got charm, they've got understanding, you can make friends with them for life, I won't bother you, they're excellent parents, very, very strict, by the way, with their offspring, but they're very, very conscientious, and uh, that's quite different to some other birds if, let's say, they fledge and one bird has bound a strand around its leg and can't get away from the nest, other, some other species would fly away with the ones that have fledged and leave the one in there. The magpies come back every day and feed the one that's uh, uh, caught in that nest and will continue to provide for them and defend them. And... Um, North Power used to be very kind to me and uh, um, come up with a cherry picker. And uh, we actually saved a few uh, magpie youngsters that way, going up in the cherry picker all the way where the nest was. And uh, I brought a pair of scissors and uh, took the binder's twine from around their legs. And the parents looked on. They did not attack. Somehow they knew we were helping them. And then they uh, um, accepted their youngster back and they flew off and were a happy family again. So these things happen too. But uh, anyway, obviously, but they, uh, or when I think of the many little stories of birds that are hand-raised, uh, like a little uh, eastern rosella that uh, found finally friends 
and uh, flew away with them. And they uh, roosted on there. That bird actually came back, gave me a little uh, kiss on my earlobe and uh, said a few nice things to me and then flew off. So it said properly goodbye. And four weeks later, it flew over and it again came down and sat on my shoulder. In fact, one, no, it it actually landed on my head. And at that time, um, it was the ABC Qantas program, uh, that uh, nature program. It recorded it so it is in, <laughs> in the ABC television archives now, that little uh, bird. It preened me on the head and then flew away. So these are exceptionally uh, special situations. Or when I had a hobby, which is a small falcon, looks like a peregrine, but it's a fair bit smaller. And it had a broken wing, and it was uh, when it was mended, and I could take the bandage off, and I had given it a flight practice, so it was ready for release. I took the bird there, and after all the weeks it had been in captivity and had to rest, the first few meters it flew just above the ground and suddenly it got its strength back and flew almost vertically up into the sky and then it flew circles and it called and called and called. And that call, I would not mind saying, was a call of happiness and I was so overwhelmed with joy for that bird. It had its freedom back. It had another time to to live. And it was exhilarating, just totally exhilarating. And the bird let me know that this was so. So there's a lot that we can share with birds and a lot we can learn from birds, actually. You know, I think it's a beautiful relationship that we have and that you have, especially with native birds, which it really is so wonderful to hear about. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today, Gisela. It's been absolutely incredible to talk to you. And congratulations again on this amazing achievement. Well, thank you so much, Ash, and uh, thanks for asking me to comment on this, which I'm very, was very happy to do.